Reflection 3 of Proverbs, the 30 sayings of the wise. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your heart to my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if you keep them within you. Let them all be fixed upon your lips, so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have instructed you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge, that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send to you? Do not rob the poor because he is poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. Do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, one of those who is surety for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take away your bed from under you? Do not remove the ancient landmark, which, is, which your fathers have set. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not overwork to be rich. Because of your own understanding, cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. The morsel you have eaten, you will vomit up and waste your pleasant words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool. For he will despise the wisdom of your words. Do not remove the ancient landmark, nor enter the fields of the fatherless. For their Redeemer is mighty. He will plead their cause against you. Apply your heart to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. Do not withhold correction from a child. For if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart will rejoice. Indeed, I myself, yes, my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak right things. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. For surely... There is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. Do not mix with wine bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy the truth, and do not sell it. Also wisdom, and instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who begets a wise child will delight in him. Let your father and your mother be glad, and let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart. Let your eyes observe my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, and a seductress is a narrow well. She also lies in wait for a victim, and increases the unfaithful among men. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? 
Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake, that I may seek another drink? Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their heart devises violence, and their lips talk of troublemaking. Through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong, yes, a man of knowledge increases strength. For by wise counsel you will wage your own war, and in a multitude of counselors there is safety. Wisdom is too lofty for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. He who plots to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of foolishness is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn toward death, and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? My son, eat honey because it's good, and the honeycomb which is sweet to your taste. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. If you have found it, there is a prospect, and your hope will not be cut off. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. But the wicked shall fall by calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked. For there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the King. Do not associate with those given to change. For their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin those two can bring. You may be seated. All right, so I, last time I, I gave you a handout with the, with kind of where I thought there were structural breaks, but without the labels. So this time I've given you labels for section A and the first 11 sayings. So hopefully you had a chance to think some about those yourself and to consider if there was um, a way of summarizing those that would be helpful to you. And so now you can judge what I've done there. So I want you to understand, why did I do that? Why did I give it to you without the label and then give you a label version? What I'm asking you to do is I'm trying to, that's a type of training, so you should test what you're taught by the word, right? You read the word yourself, you see, what did you come up with? And then I'm telling you what I came up with. And maybe there's more there, maybe there's more insight, maybe there's not. But the point is, by giving it to you ahead of time, asking you to consider it, and asking you to try to, give your own summation of what those verses say, that would hopefully help you to be in a better position to assess the teaching that you're getting now. So, these 30 sayings, this is the third collection, it's focused on the young man and the adult. 
And this is sort of a encapsulating of a lot of the longer teaching we've received before. We looked at the prologue last time, which I argued that verses 17 through 21 were the prologue. And that what's happening there is essentially a reminder of all of the emphasis we've had in the past about get wisdom, seek wisdom, study what the Word says, value that, give attention to the teaching. So that prologue here is a reminder of that. We've had that theme, and it's reminded. It says, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your heart to my knowledge, for it is a pleasant thing if you keep them within you. Let them all be fixed upon your lips. This is a, an attempt to motivate the son, a reminder of pleasure, and the idea that the knowledge that's about to be given, not just opinions, the knowledge that's about to be given, should be paid attention to. The goal is verse 19. It's the doxological focus. The father is saying, look, I love you so much, son, that I am teaching you this. I've organized this. These 30 sayings are organized so that all that's been taught before is now even more concise, more organized, and this is meant to help you to have heads of doctrine. That's how much I care about making sure you're taught well. That's what, the, that's what Solomon is teaching us here. That's what the wise are teaching us here. Verse 20, have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge? And you'll remember that word for excellent things is the Hebrew word for 30. Shilashom is the Hebrew word for 30, which is used to represent sort of a complete or excellent teaching. So this is, have I not written to you 30 counsels? And knowledge. It's sort of saying, have I not given you 30 commands and doctrines? And so, there's something there that's important. This, this, this word, counsel and knowledge, those aren't just meaningless fluff repetition. What those do is they're pointing at us two things. They're reminding us of an important distinction when we interpret the Bible. To rightly divide the word, we have to know the difference between law and and gospel. Law is advice. Law is counsel. Law is commands. It's given to us in the imperative form. Do this. Gospel is doctrine. It's indicatives. It's knowledge of truth. It's statements that are declarative rather than commands. So the distinction between the law and gospel. Now, there's, the, there's a narrow way that you can use those terms, that distinction that I've just laid out. There's the broader way. You can use the word law to say the whole counsel of God. Paul sometimes does that. If I talk about the law. You'll see that in the Old Testament. You can also use the word gospel to refer to the whole counsel of God. So you have to look at the context and know which sense is being used. But when they're put side by side, you know that they're not being used in the same way. They're being used in the, the narrow way. So what we have here is, I have, have I not written to you 30 commands and doctrines that I, may make, that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who sinned to you. Now, the goal of the Father here is to cause the Son to have a doxological focus, a focus on the glory of God, by giving the Son certainty about the words of truth. If you look up the Hebrew for the certainty of the words of truth, you can translate the word certainty as firmness, but it's very commonly translated as truth. It's sort of like the truthiness of truth. Right? The, the firmness of the words of truth. The, the certainty of the words of truth. And so the presentation of revealed truth, commandments, and doctrines, the, the presentation of these words itself gives knowledge. As, as one wrestles with the words that are revealed, that, that process is the process by which 
knowledge is obtained. As you begin to examine the divine precepts and doctrines, you begin to test them for meaning. When you understand them at a basic level, you begin to see the impossibility of denying them. When you understand the definition of the God of the Bible, when you see his attributes, it is impossible to say this God is not living. It is impossible when you understand his attributes to then say he is false. And so the need for a basis in thought is found in divine revelation. And so the certainty of the words of truth comes in the process of wrestling with these words of truth. The presentation of the truth is the thing that is required to be done. Now, there's more that can be done. There's a training. There's a questioning. There's, there's, there's the presentation of things, the arguing with, the, the engagement with the student. And look at how much that's been done in the book of Proverbs. The presentation of similar or related information in different ways. It's sort of He talks around a subject. Right? He, he seeks to take a look at things in such a way as to help to make it so that as the son is hearing the counsel, he's forced to think about something from a little bit different angle over and over again. And so we see the book of Proverbs doing this engagement over and over again with slightly different take. Now, the result, verse 21, is the knowledge of the truth creates honest character and thereby yields honest reports. The idea here is that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who sin to you. Okay, so if somebody's learned the words of truth, sees the certainty of them, and then learns truth by finding something out and is able to report back truthfully. Right, that, that idea, think about this with Somebody under authority, think about this for yourself. Have you ever been given the task of go figure this out and let me know? Have you ever given that task to somebody else? Have you ever had that report come back and it was unreliable and you acted on information and you went, oh, that was wrong, and so you acted on incorrect understanding? The idea of being able to give faithful service by being able to give a faithful report is a powerful part of the result of knowing the truth. When you know the truth, you have, it creates honest character, which allows you to give honest report. Now, that was the prologue we talked about last time. So section A is the is ten sayings about wealth. And so I want you to examine that. I want you to question that. Is that the case? Are these ten sayings that are focused on wealth, or is there some other unifying principle for these ten sayings? Okay, so... There are 10 sayings here, sayings 2 through 11. And you can see where the breakup is there. So, Bruce Waltke's commentary on Proverbs has this breakup of these sayings. And he calls this a Decalogue on Wealth. That's his, that's his title for this. I would have stolen it, but this is being recorded. So, section A... Ten sayings about wealth. So saying one. Here's my summary. Seek gain lawfully. Gain through injustice brings justice back on you. And if you if you try to get gain in an unjust way, it will come back on your head. So, verse 22 and 23. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. Okay, so notice we have here, we have commandments, do not, and we have doctrine. Here are some truths. Okay, so we have imperatives and we have indicatives. What are the imperatives? Do not rob the poor out of the motivation of thinking he's poor, so he won't be able to fight me back. Nor oppress the afflicted at the gate. And then there's a reason given, a motivation. The motivation is an expression of truth, an indicative, that's supposed to help us to understand why this is stupid thinking. It's thinking that doesn't fit with the nature of reality. Here's the temptation. The nature of reality is this. Poor people cannot defend themselves. And those who are suffering don't have the energy to fight back. 
Therefore, if I'm going to steal from anybody or going to oppress anybody, I should steal from the poor and oppress those who are in suffering. Why is that wrong? Because it does not properly assess reality. Here's the invisible part. The Lord will plead their cause. Here's the invisible part. The Lord will plunder the soul of those who plunder the poor and the oppressed. Now, this relates to the fifth commandment and the eighth commandment. How does it relate to the fifth commandment? It's talking about relative stations and places. People based upon being rich and poor. And how does it relate to the eighth commandment? It has to do with property, like money, right? Don't take money from the poor. But also rights. Rights are property. Don't oppress the suffering. If you oppress, if you take rights, you are taking property. You are taking a heritage. So here's the good news. Here's the gospel. Here's the doctrine embedded in this text. The poor are not defenseless. The afflicted are not without a defender. God will defend them. God will extract more from the oppressor than the oppressor took. And he will restore more than was lost to the oppressed. So do you see how there's counsel and how there's doctrine in these things? Next thing. And you can see how that one relates to wealth, right? Thing three. Summary. Choose, cha- choose companions carefully. Habitual anger is contagious and self-destructive. So let's read those now. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. Okay, so let's think about this from a law perspective. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go. That's a command. It's rooted in a statement about the nature of reality. Why is that? Because if you do that, that will tend towards you becoming like him. If you do that, that will set a trap for you, for your own soul. So the fifth commandment, how does this relate to the fifth commandment? It's about friendships and loyalties. One of the duties in the fifth commandment has to do with how you treat equals, people who are of the same station, and your duties towards them. And so friendships, loyalties are a part of what's addressed in the fifth commandment. Friendship is a commitment to seek the good together and the good of the other. Right? You're a friend with somebody when they seek the good and when they seek your good. And you also seek the good and seek their good. That's friendship. And so this idea of friendship that is a mutual pursuit of the good and each other's good, a commitment to that, that's about loyalty. People who do not control their anger are people who tear down what's being built and who create resentment and distrust. It undermines loyalty and progress. It relates to the Sixth Commandment. Sixth Commandment has a lot to say about anger and hatred. Anger is a trap for your own soul to lose control. If you're angry, you give the devil a foothold to take ground. You set a trap for yourself. You have to learn to resolve anger fast. We're told, don't let the sun go down on your anger, on your wrath. And to avoid giving way to anger. There's the Ephesians text that says that, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. The idea is that anger gives an opportunity to the devil. It's easier if you're angry for the devil to manipulate you. And when there's anger and there's division in the camp, that makes a point where it's easier for the devil to cause harm in the kingdom of Christ. And so, 
There's a danger there for anger. Eighth commandment. It relates to habits. Venting anger rather than controlling anger is a habit that is easy to copy and easy to develop. There's a sense of release and apparent productivity causing short-term action from others when anger is put on display. You ever had the experience where you tried to be really patient with something and you just couldn't get it to get fixed? Somebody else comes along and they're angry and they get everything fixed really fast on it and you go, oh, man, that was, that was quick. Now there's a time for that. There's a time for quick discipline. One of my feelings is I don't discipline fast enough. I don't discipline harshly enough. I don't growl enough. These are things that I'm trying to do more of. But at the same time, if that's done too much and not done with building, not done stably, that creates long-term destruction. You start to warp yourself, warp the behavior of others as they start to try to placate the angry person. People start to avoid the angry person. They keep opportunity from the angry person. So there's a way in which it destroys opportunity, destroys well-being over time. Anger makes us people hide things as opposed to talking about those problems. So reputation, ninth commandment. Habitual or uncontrolled anger is destructive to reputation, and a man is judged by his friends. So you can destroy your own reputation. We should be willing to bear shame for each other as Christians. We should also not be willing to bear with shameful behavior, but to see it stopped. Saying four. Here's my summary. Be slow to take on debt with a personal guarantee. Be slow to take on debt with a personal guarantee. So, do not be one of those who strikes hands in a pledge. One of those who is surety for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take away your bed from under you? Okay, so notice the law portion first, followed by an explanation of, think about how this relates to the nature of reality. So, promising repayment in a personal guarantee or offering security for debts is dangerous. You can lose everything for your present relief and enjoyment if you do not have the money needed at the time when it is called upon. You need to understand the risk you're taking, and there needs to be a good enough inducement to take on such a risk. So you have to carefully consider that, and you also have to consider whether there's some way of avoiding that. So a personal guarantee or the giving of security are things that are that are dangerous. You can lose property fast. And so, for example, why would anybody ever borrow money to buy a house? Okay, well, you borrow money to buy a house because you're already planning to pay for a place to live. You're planning to rent. That's a continuous payment. You have to live somewhere. So you go, well, I might as well pay for a thing that eventually will be mine that I don't have to pay anymore on. And then you offer security. What security do you offer? Well, you offer the house itself and a down payment. So is that strictly prohibited? Is, is the Bible saying, this is sin, never ever do it? No, look at all of these. I want you to think about all of these in absolute terms. All of these have a do not type of statement or a statement that seems absolute on its face. Let's even go up one. Make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man do not go. Does that mean if somebody ever gets angry that you should never be their friend? Does that mean if somebody ever had a pattern of anger that you should never be their friend? No. The idea is to consider it, to deal with it carefully. There's a later one that says, don't, you know, don't talk to a fool. Okay, well then, I'm glad somebody broke that to tell me the gospel when I was a fool. Right, so these are proverbs that are helping us to understand the general tendency of things and to consider costs. Right? So this idea of being slow to take on debt with a personal guarantee, you need to have a strong inducement. You need to carefully consider, intelligently consider it. 
Why do we take out, why do we borrow money against a house or the security of the house itself and the down payment? Because it's the cheapest money you can find. You're not going to be able to borrow at a lower interest rate. So there are inducements to it. I don't have to have my rent be wasted anymore, and I have a lower interest rate than I could otherwise get. So those are the reasons why one would offer a security for that borrowed money. Saying five, respect contracts and covenants across generations. Verse 28, do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. In the Reformation, Romanists pulled this out against Protestants. They'd say, don't remove the ancient landmark. We had a council. Our fathers set this thing. We need to not change that. And the Protestant response was, but the Bible says the opposite. We're not supposed to remove the, the landmarks, so how do, you, how do you make that work? So Calvin wrote a book called On the Necessity of Reforming the Church, in which he takes this and he says, applying this in an absolute way to the decisions of the ancient church or of the church in the Middle Ages or whatever is to take a proverb that requires us to carefully consider actions of the past and to make it so that tradition is infallible. And he just stacks up all the verses where Jesus argues against the doctrines and commandments of men and, and goes through those things. So this is not something that you can absolutize. But what we need to do is we need to consider this. What, what is the literal thing being talked about? Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. This is referring to putting a structure between property on the boundary of the property. The landmark shows you this is where my land ends, this is where your land begins. And so if you move the landmark, what are you doing? You're changing who owns which land. And typically if people move the landmark, do you think they're going to move it toward their neighbor's house or toward their house? They move it towards their neighbor's house to get more land. It's a type of stealing. Mm -hmm. Now, you might go, well, this was said a long time ago. Things have changed doesn't really make any sense anymore great make a deal don't steal the land by moving the landmark don't just violate the contract don't just change a covenant now here, here's the thing why is this not just a contract because the landmarkers in Israel were set as a part of the covenant by God he gave out by a lot the property of each family so this is a reference in particular to the landmarks that were set up by the distribution of land by lot by God in the Mosaic administration in the uh, time of Joshua and overlapping into the Mosaic period before the crossing over the other side. So that, that right there, this idea of the landmark leading to, to covenants. So the fifth commandment relates to this. How? When your fathers make a covenant or contract, it's binding on future generations if the covenant or contract is lawful. So I want you to think about that. The binding of future generations in covenant. When God established the covenant with Abraham, he told him to have circumcision and to use it, to give it to his children, because this is a covenant with you and with your descendants. And he talked about it being an everlasting covenant across generations. We baptize children in recognition of the way in which covenants are binding across time from their fathers down. And so the idea of the binding obligation of covenants is something that helps us to understand what we're commanded to do in the Great Commission is to see every nation covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ and to see those covenanted nations grow in faithfulness and with the knowledge of God. And that occurs by us caring in the covenant institution of the household for future generations, and in the church seeing that covenant work done, and seeing new people brought in and children brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord there, and then in the nation having a covenanted national status where that heritage is passed across time. Now, we have an imperfect covenanted history. But here's our history. Okay? Our history 
is a history where a gospel came to the British Islands relatively early. You see a church that's a Celtic church that's more faithful than Rome by far. You get into the Middle Ages, and that gets oppressed and pushed, but it's retained to some extent. And when you have the rising up of Wycliffe, there is a preaching of the gospel in a land that still had some seeds of the gospel there. And he took the Latin Vulgate and translated it into English to have it be preached. That resulted in a seeding of the preaching of the word in the common language across the continent of Europe. But before Wycliffe, there had been an important covenantal development called Magna Carta. A few hundred years before Wycliffe, there had been an oppressor king named John, and nobles had forced John, when he acted the tyrant, to come and sit at the table and to acknowledge his covenanted duties as a Christian king. And they appealed to their past. They appealed to a past going back to Alfred, many hundreds of years before, Alfred the Great, who basically took the book of Deuteronomy and copy and pasted it and made it the law of the land. Now, when King John had that brought to him, the result was that the nobles there, as lesser magistrates, made him acknowledge that he himself was under the law. And Magna Carta acknowledged, for example, the right for a trial, not just of a king-appointed judge, but to have judges from the people. Inside of that also was an acknowledgement of the right of the people to resist tyranny and the right of the people to keep and bear arms. You go forward into the English Reformation and there's a resistance against the tyranny of the papal attempts to impose foreign rule on that land. You get deeper into the Reformation, into the 1600s, and you have the Scottish resisting the imposition by a tyrannical king of the common book of prayer. And they fight a war called the Bishop's War because they said, we don't want bishops, and we don't want the book of common prayer, and we don't want vestments, and we aren't going to kneel for the Lord's Supper. These things are idolatry, and they are tyranny. And so they fought a war over that, over church government and ceremonies. And they won they defeated a sitting king in battle twice. And the result was that it emboldened Parliament, a Parliament dominated by Puritans, to rise and resist that king too. And in resisting that king, in waging just war to see the establishment of Christian rule and to avoid tyranny, they defeated that king, King Charles I, they removed him from the throne and removed his head from his shoulders. They established a republic, but it was brittle. In that time of that English Civil War, there was a covenanting to a new height of reformation. In the midst of that war, the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Larger Catechism, the Shorter Catechism, the Directory of Worship, a form of government, were all written. And a uniformity of doctrine, worship, and government was accepted in Britain and Ireland. In England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. Adoption by the government. And you know what's funny? The successor, the king's son, also swore to that covenant. And so whether you think that king, that line of kings was legitimate or not, you have the king, the parliament, all of the realms accepting that covenant. And then you have our colonial existence coming out of that body. And you have in Massachusetts Bay an adopting of that covenant with an exception, a rejection of the form of government in Massachusetts Bay. And so there's an adopting, even by the colonial government, of the Massachusetts colony, that covenant. Then, in the United States, in the War of Independence, you have a Declaration of Independence adopted by the civil magistrates, acknowledging divine, divine, divinely established rights 
And after the war, you have the adoption of a constitution, which requires oath for entering office, is a covenantal document. It is a horrendous declension from the clarity of the Westminster Standards. The response of some of the covenanters was to say, this looks like atheism. You have, I've mentioned to you this before, you have acknowledgement of Sunday as a day that shouldn't have governmental business ordinarily on it. You have the reference to the year of our Lord on that. You have the Declaration of Independence acknowledging providence, acknowledging sacred honor, acknowledging the idea of the, the laws of God and of, nature, and of nature and of nature's God. You have things that are acknowledgments there, but the explicit Christianity is so weak. Things like the terms common law, which refer back to Alfred's references to Deuteronomy and that being over the king. These are the kinds of things we're left with. So that's what we have. It's a real covenantal history. There's declension in it. There's weakening in it. And the reason it's attacked, the reason our covenantal history is attacked so vigorously is because of the American hatred of the establishment of religion and because of the fact that what we do have in the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, is still, though a very light Christian yoke, too heavy of a yoke for those who hate Christianity. Do not remove the ancient landmark, which your fathers have set. What we need to do is take the things that exist in our own covenant of history, the things that are good, and preserve them. And we need to reform and advance. This is true in churches, and this is true in the state, and it's true in households. We think about the state and reformation in the state across time. We think about churches and reformation in churches across time. But I want you to think about this. In your household, how can you make your household more ordered? And how can you pass on your state to be more Christian into the future? That's a covenantal institution. We, in America, don't think much about households compared to the way that men have historically across time because the state is so strong and the individual is so strong, but the church and the household are very weak in America. We think of that church as a voluntary association rather than an authoritative covenantal institution with power given to it by the Lord Jesus Christ. We think of the household as a useful coalition to reduce rent. The household is a covenantal institution established at a time of man's innocency. Where marriage, representing the mystical union between Christ and his church, was given. Children coming from that legitimate connection. And property being transmitted across time. There are covenantal blessings and curses that pass in lineage by household, in churches, and in states. And if you are aware of curses that come from past disobedience of your ancestors, what you ought to do is pray to that throne in heaven. You pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, pleading based upon the blood of Jesus Christ, that curse would be removed from you and that there would be a breaking in multi-generational curse and that instead the thousand generation blessings would be passed down to your children and your children's children. So I want to encourage you to consider that tonight in your own family worship, to consider and pray for, without even identifying them, just praying that God would remove curse of multi-generational sins and that he would begin and magnify multi-generational blessings. Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. If your fathers have adopted a standard, then we need to be careful to examine it before we change it. Canons and confessions and judgments should not be thrown off lightly. Saying six, here's my summary. Honor and authority flow to skillful, to the skillful hard worker. 
Logan and I argued about this title for a while. It was originally Less Words. He had a suggestion for Less Words. This was a title that was made by committee. So, Honor and authority flow to the skillful hard worker. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. Now, part of the debate is this. Is the skill, the word for he who excels in his work, it can be translated as he who works fast, he who works promptly, he who works skillfully. Which is it? Yes. If you work quickly, it's probably because you're skilled. Or you, you can do something well because you are good at it. And if I try to change a tire, it can take a while. The NASCAR pit crew tries to change a tire real quick. Do you see a man who excels at his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. He won't stand before obscure men. Those who are diligent in their work, those who work promptly with focus, those who have prompt, focused work, they will become skilled. Skill results in high reputation. Good reputation causes notable figures to take note of you. Reputation allows for higher demand and higher prices, and thus a selection of the most honorable clients and customers. Diligent work will result in reputation, honor, and wealth. That's the tendency. That's the structure of reality. There's a command here, and it's implicit. There's not an explicit command. What we have is a statement about the nature of reality. People who work well and hard will work for people that are notable, for people in authority, for kings. They won't work for obscure people. And that implies, if we know that honor is good, that implies that we should be diligent. If it's good for us to get honor and this type of work gets honor, then we should work that way. So there's implicit law there. Now, how is this? This doesn't feel like gospel. It sounds like try harder, and good things happen. How is that gospel? Here's how it's gospel. Do you know who did excellent work on your behalf? The Lord Jesus Christ did excellent work on your behalf, and as a result, you will stand before the king justified. Mm-hmm. Diligent work will result in reputation, honor, and wealth. Reputation and honor and wealth are signs of skill and diligence. Authority and honor flow to those who take responsibility. <clears throat> Saying seven. Luxuries are deceptive. Resist craving luxuries to avoid self-deception. So in summary, let's check the text. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. So how are delicacies deceptive food? They're deceptive food because they taste great. They're amazing. So you think this is really pleasurable. Pleasure is a sign for goodness. And so you go, this is good. I'm going to pursue this. And maybe that will be the pursuit of good. So the pursuit of luxuries, the pursuit of pleasure is deceptive because it's a trap. You can waste a lot of time and a lot of resources pursuing pleasure. And so you have to exercise self-discipline. You have to put a knife to your own throat and go, stop, don't do this, don't pursue this, don't make this the good, don't lie to yourself. 
Now, rulers have luxuries for a reason. Rulers have luxuries because of the resources at their disposal, right? They, the tendency, the idea of if you govern yourself well, you govern your household well, then you're fit for public rule. Then one of the markers of that is having resources. And then when you engage in public rule, you're trying to deal with other people who are in public rule. And so you honor them with luxuries. Nice dinner, good service. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you. Why has, he, why has he done this? He's done it just because he's going, yeah, the good life is just having banquets. And when you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you. Rulers have resources at their disposal, and the importance of offering good hospitality to make their meetings more effective makes it worth the cost. One could be deceived into thinking that one should seek power in order to have luxuries, rather than thinking that luxuries are for more effective service and for grateful enjoyment, and that authority is for service. This is the tendency. You have somebody take power. Power's hard. The luxuries become a mechanism for escape. The use of the luxuries and the dainties make it so that that leader becomes effeminate and disconnected and ineffective. And then that leader loses power. The power is not for luxuries. The luxuries are for wise use of power. If you start to crave luxury for itself and pleasure alone of it, then there's a great danger of waste and foolish striving and of being deceived by a false god of pleasure. Saying 8. Do not work more for money than for wisdom. That's my summary. Verses 4 and 5. Let's read those. Do not overwork to be rich. Because of your own understanding, cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. All right, so despite what you may have heard from me in general, there is such a thing as overwork. I know, calm down. There is such a thing as overwork. For example, are you keeping the Sabbath? If you're not, you're overworking. Are you doing morning and evening worship? I don't have time. Really? Overworking. Are you dealing with biblical duties in marriage or towards your children? If not, overworking. There's a point at which more resources is not more efficient than more free time. Okay. At a certain point, you go, more resources will make it so I can do more, I need more resources, I need to trade time for resources, so you work to do that. And there's a point at which there's a diminishing return. Do you find that you regularly get too little sleep? Is your worship frequently rushed? Which thing are you working harder for then? Money or wisdom? Riches cannot be guaranteed by work. Riches can be lost. Wisdom cannot be lost. Wisdom cannot be lost. Wisdom cannot be lost. Saying nine. Be wary of hospitality from a miser. It comes with a side of curse and resentment. Do not eat the bread of a miser. And I like the literal Hebrew is one who has an evil eye. The evil eye. I'll have to ask John Marsh how you can see what the evil eye is. No? Do not eat the bread of a miser, one who has an evil eye. Nor desire his delicacies. The idea of one with an evil eye is one who looks upon you with the intention to curse. Okay, so looking upon you with the intention to curse. 
the intention of harm. And the idea of one who has this desire to harm you, the connection to a miser is this. If somebody offers you food and drink and doesn't really want you to take it, then they're not seeking your good by offering the hospitality. They're seeking your harm, and or at least they don't desire your good. They're going, don't take this. Apparently, it's a cultural thing in China. If somebody offers you something once, you never take it. So it's just like this is on stage. You can, you can. It's a very formulaic way of being the miser. So, if you really don't want somebody to take something, you offer it once, and you don't offer anymore after they refuse it. If you accept on the first offer, <gasps> this is rude. On the second offer, it's really like you know, do what you want. I'm serious. If you want this, you can have this. This is that's fine. It's fine. We're good. You say no on the second one, and they offer a third time. I need you to take this, or I will kill you. And if you don't take it, my water not good enough for you? Think you're better than my water? Fine. Take a seat. Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. By the way, that thing, the like water thing, in ancient Rome, it was this big thing. If somebody drank the water from your source of water, it was this great honor. It's them saying, you have water worth drinking. Because clean water is hard to come by. Right? You go, is it pleasant water to drink? Is it clean water? Is it safe? And so it's a statement of, I think you are clean. I think that, that your lands are well managed and pleasant, and there's certainly not animal dung in it. Like, this is the statement that is being made, that you are clean and efficient and effective, and so that's a statement of honor. So there's certain things like that with hospitality. If you don't accept things, there's this sense of, am I, am I not good enough for you? And that's one of the things, if you want to be a missionary, you need to be aware of that. You have to eat all sorts of great, great, uh, gross stuff. And if you don't, you will insult people, and they will not care what you have to say about the gospel. So that's one of those things. If you don't have a strong stomach, frankly, don't go into third world missionary work. Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you. His heart is not with you. The morsel you've eaten, you will vomit up and waste your pleasant words. So here's the deal. Outward signs of hospitality can be hypocritical. There can be a curse that's coming with it. So don't be naive. Outward signs are not inward realities. Signs can contradict. And so if you can't read the inward reality, what can you do? You can look at the signs. And if there's signs that contradict, you go... This guy is offering me this, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't want me to do it because of this, that, and the other thing. Believe that other stuff. Don't be naive. Outward signs are not inward reality. If you take things that people resentfully give, they can be extracted back by resentful and grasping persons. And that's the thing. The warning here is if you take something that somebody doesn't want you to actually get, they will pull it back out in a painful way, cause you to vomit it up, and they'll make it so that all of your efforts to build relationship are wasted. Saying 10, count the cost of talking to fools. Fools will hate your wisdom. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool. For he will despise the wisdom of your words. All right, don't preach the gospel to anybody ever. Don't do it. Well, we're commanded to do so. So how do we deal with this? It's a statement about counting the cost. Count the cost. Be aware of the fact that when you share the truth, you do a favor for the person and you do a harm for yourself. But it's not a real harm. You will be repaid a hundredfold by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a great investment. But don't kid yourself. Most of the time, it's going to result in a short-term loss. The more foolish a person is, the more careful you should be in approaching the person. And the more powerful. Think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul went in front of magistrates who were fools 
and told them the gospel boldly. Why was that? Is it because he didn't see his life as having any value? No. It's because he believed doing what was right was worth it. So he put his life on the line over and over again. And what happened? He got beat. He got stoned. He got thrown in prison repeatedly. Fools must be spoken to, or else no fools will come to repentance. But approaching a fool to speak should be viewed as a dangerous enterprise. Look at how silly we are. Just think about this for a second. We all just want to do stuff with other people who are fools. Just going to hang out. Speaking to fools is a dangerous enterprise. Spending time with fools is a dangerous enterprise. You need to do it intentionally. You need to do it as an act of ministry. You need to do it with the expectation that it will be costly. You need to do it for the sake of trying to win them. It's an act of conquest. When you go and engage with a fool, it's like standing outside of a fortified city and declaring, we're besieging you. If you do it casually or lightly, it will not go well. Every time you engage with fools in a casual setting, you are setting yourself up to be influenced by evil, habituated to wickedness. And if you casually speak truth into that, you are setting yourself up for their wrath. You have to be intentional about it. Now, I've just given you lots of warning because that's what this proverb's about. Remember, the wise man wins souls. Remember, winning an offended person is harder than conquering a city. These are acts of spiritual warfare. They require prayer, wisdom, skillful use of words. These sayings, these wise sayings, are designed to make it so you can speak the right word at the right time. If you study Proverbs, it helps you to be able to give an apple of gold in a setting of silver. It makes it so that you can give the right words, the fitting words, at the appropriate time. Saying 11. Do not violate contracts or covenants, even when it's convenient. God watches. Verse 10 is very similar to one of the verses above. Do not remove the ancient landmark, nor enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is mighty. He will plead their cause against you. What we've done is we've taken the concept of the ancient landmark, and we've taken a step askance to look at it from a little bit different angle. What's the different angle? The different angle is to as opposed to focusing on the idea of the landmarks of the fathers in terms of honoring the obligations imposed by our predecessors, now instead we're thinking about not violating those agreements when it becomes convenient. So, do not remove an ancient landmark nor enter the fields of the fatherless. Are orphans particularly difficult to overcome? Is there a Orphans known as like a particularly scrappy bunch that that you can't oppress very well. No, I mean orphans don't have a father to protect them. That's the idea of the fatherless. Oh, they have no protector. These will be easy to oppress. In history, one of the tropes of history is there's a young king whose father died. Let's make it so that other people can rule over that guy and effectively control the kingdom. And this kind of squashing away the orphan, putting to the side, and controlling their resources. Okay? That's a classic move of the oppressor. Do not remove the ancient landmark or enter the field of the fatherless. Removing the ancient landmark to remove the marker that shows here's where the property is different and entering the field to take things that are growing on that side. So you're taking the fruit, taking the gains, taking the property 
of the fatherless. Why are we not to do this? There's certainly not short-term temporal consequences that are going to come from them. They're not going to catch us very effectively, and they're not going to be able to enforce it very effectively. And by the time it's discovered, it will probably be very late down the line. So it's likely that we can get away, likely that we can not be caught, likely that the, the catch is worth the risk. Well, their Redeemer is mighty. In fact, he's all-powerful. And he will plead their cause against you. He'll also judge the cause. He'll execute the cause. He will bring it to pass. And he sees everything. So you think that this is a way to get gain, to oppress these people, to, to rob the poor and to oppress the afflicted? Is it an affliction to have your loss of your father? So you think oppressing the afflicted and robbing the poor is an easy way to gain. They have a mighty redeemer. He'll plead their cause against you. So you see the structure of these sayings going back. Saying two, which is right after that prologue, you can see that we have don't rob the poor because he's poor nor oppress the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. And you see how this section is ended with essentially a restatement of that. This is the structure of the sayings themselves. These are the ten sayings that are in this little subsection. And I think that you can find that uniting theme is wealth. It teaches us how to properly think about wealth. That's ten out of the thirty. A third of the thirty are about wealth. God seems to think that wealth and dominion, working and property generation, and being honest about property is a big deal. So, comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. All right. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give to us wisdom and help us to govern ourselves and our property well. I ask that you help us to use property and work in a way that brings glory to your name. We thank you for your word. We are not left in darkness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.